Hello, I'm Michael Wimmer, and welcome to the Pros and Pros Podcast, a podcast devoted to the exploration of great sports writing. LeBron James, over the course of his NBA career, has established himself as not only one of the greatest basketball players ever, but as a savvy businessman as well. Now in Brian Winhorst's new book, LeBron Inc., The Making of a Billion Dollar Athlete, the story of how LeBron has been able to become a global icon has been more fully told than ever before highlighting both his successes and failures in the business world, while showing just how he's been able to leverage his on-court success into off-court wealth. No one is more equipped to tell this story than my guest today, Brian Winhorst, a reporter for ESPN who has been covering LeBron ever since he entered the league. Together, Brian and I talked about his new book, LeBron Inc., and so much more. We had a great conversation. I'm excited to share it with you. And without further ado, here's Brian Winhorst. Today I have with me Brian Winhorst, an NBA reporter and commentator for ESPN, who's here to talk to me about his new book, LeBron Inc., The Making of a Billion Dollar Athlete. It's a pleasure to have you with me today, Brian. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, to, to start out, what led you to want to write a book exploring LeBron's exploits in the business world? Well, you know, there is a demand for content on LeBron, which I'm sure is not a surprise. Um, And the last book that I did, which was really a fairy tale book, which was about the 2016 championship. And, you know, when I was doing interviews and doing preparation for that book, it was pretty easy because I would just say, look, on the last page of this book, uh, you will win, you know, (laughs) talking to a bunch of Cavs players and people. And that was very much, you know, about basketball. And so when I had an opportunity to have another project, I really didn't want to make it about what was going on in those four lines, something that I would find interesting and different. And if you follow LeBron at all, you're, you're at least somewhat aware that his, um, that his, it, over the last you know, five, seven years, he's really been focused on off-court business, and it's really been a driver of a lot of his decision-making. And so I was interested in sort of telling that story. And there have been, there have been, there's been things that have been done on him over the years. You know, there was a profile in, in Forbes at one time, a Fast Company, which is you know, a big industry public, you know, publication within business that people like had done a, a full profile and a couple of other things, um, you know, advertising age had done some stuff, but there had never been anything done that looked at his entire business portfolio and his decision-making and, and over the last, over really over the 15 year period. And so I was interested in sort of going into a different um, area of his, of his body of work. And that's what you know, got me into this. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned uh, your last book on the 2016 uh, playoff run, and and you wrote that book with Dave McMenamin, and you've also written books with Terry Pluto as co-authors. What what led you to want to tackle this topic on your own? No, I, I think the I think the thing was, you know, um, Terry and David both really added, um, you know, to to the um, you know to the product. Um, Dave, for sure, because he was the daily beat writer. By the time that book came out, um, I had stopped being the daily beat writer. He had a lot of information. In this book, I really feel like there hasn't been many people that have covered LeBron's business like I have. Um, I would have loved to have had a co-author who had the institutional knowledge I could lean on, but mm-hmm. there just isn't, which is one of the reasons why this topic was so appealing to me. And um, you know, the other thing was um, the you know, the process of it made it not necessarily tied to season performance. Although mm-hmm. this season and this performance was not so good. It's not the ideal time to be 
um, talking about LeBron James when he's been eliminated from the playoffs for the first time in 15 years. Um, but I was able to put some more time into it because it wasn't like um, um, something that, you know, was going to be tied to actually how he played. So that enabled that me to do that. Mm-hmm. Gave you the, the lack of sort of immediate context gave you some, some freedom that you may not have had in the past. For sure. That's a good way to put it. And also, um, you know, the people who were, who I had to interview for this book, you know, number one, they're not used to being interviewed in a lot of cases. And number two, I had to talk them into it in certain cases. It took a while for me to get them to that point. And so it's not like an athlete who's used to being interviewed after every game, where over the course of six months, you may do 50 or 70 interviews with them. We have opportunities to ask it. The, um, the people who had the information for me to put together were a little bit different profile. Mm-hmm. Was was getting those interviews the the most difficult part of writing the book, or were there any other sort of unexpected challenges that that cropped up along the way? Well, I think from a functional standpoint, yeah, you know, yes. I mean, there's you know, there are certain people. Um, there's a certain sources in the book that just didn't want their names used, and um, you know, there was one interview that I did with somebody who was involved in a deal that LeBron made, and he was a very important interview, and he. And he um, he was sort of reluctant, but the more I talked to him about it, the more he got into remembering the deal and he got the juices flowing. <laughs> um, and, you know, you could tell he was reliving it, even though it was quite some time ago. And, um, you know, that got him, you know, excited, and, you know, and I enjoyed that. But, um, um, you know, overall, um, you know, the, 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 this, you know, this story, a lot of these stories just haven't been told. And if they've been told, they've been told, you know, very uh, surface level, not looked into it. And so, um, you know, that made it enjoyable. The other thing was I wrote quite a bit about the decision in this book mm-hmm. and people haven't really written about the decision in a long time. You know, when it first came out or maybe when it was out for a year, um, there was a lot of coverage of it, but going back and now having some perspective on it, which I felt, I feel the decision has aged pretty well, not that necessarily the execution, but the, but the idea and talking to Jim Gray, talking to John Skipper, who was Eddie. ESPN when he uh, pretty much greenlit it and made the deal. Talking to those types of people about uh, what was going in, I talked to a Coca-Cola executive who is the sponsor and sort of helped put it together. And um, so I, I enjoyed writing about you know the decision with some space because um, mm-hmm. I don't think that been, had been talked about really in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing too about the decision that's indisputable now almost nine years later is that just from pure basketball perspective, it was indisputably the, the correct decision. And uh, yes, without, that never gets mentioned. That's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing too is you, you, you just allude to it having aged quite well in terms of the player empowerment and the message control, even though the execution and the reception did, did not go as planned. But do you think that there was a way they could have gone on and done the show and announced him moving to the heat, but with a more positive reaction from, from fans and analysts? Yes. And they actually just did it. You just don't know that they just did it. The decision to just happened. Um, only when LeBron went to Los Angeles, he didn't do it. You know, he just put out a simple press release. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't do any interviews, didn't do any press conference or anything like that. He waited until the start of the school year, and he got the entire media to come to his I Promise School in Akron for at-risk, uh, you know, um, middle schoolers. And he got major coverage of the school and his message there. 
in addition to talking about his move to the Lakers. Just like the decision, it was based in charity. Just like the decision, the, the, the interest was in shining light on the ways he was helping children. But he did it with such a lighter touch that, it, mm-hmm. that his, I promise, scope also put some space in between. So he didn't have to worry about the fallout. Like, you know, you know one of the things about the decision was they had a check um, there to give to the Boys and Girls Club, like one of those oversized checks that you see on ceremonial, um, you know, gift giving. Um, they just didn't get to it because there was so much pressure and such, 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 you know, difficulty in the room. They didn't even, you know, tell people about what this was all for. You know, the, you know, there were Boys and Girls Clubs across the country that were getting new roofs and new computer labs and new uh, hardwood, uh, you know, floors in their basketball courts that came from that that nobody knew about because the the uh, investment came later and it, you know it was buried in the newspaper um this way you know he basically did the decision 2.0 um where he where he showcased in a completely different way and i think that shows the lessons that they learned um from uh, from 2010 well it's also interesting too because with the i promise opening i think that was at the end of july um of last year and at right. that time, he'd announced that he was leaving for Los Angeles almost two months prior. So there had been that time, there, there wasn't that suspense element that there was in the decision, the, the waiting of like 20 minutes to reveal that frustrated so many viewers at the time. Well, it was just a, you know, it was a very, overall, I think one of the things, it was a good idea, but they were, but they were just a little bit too arrogant or, you know, they just had a little bit too hubris. You know, they, you know, they were like, you know, we'll just pull this off. And, you know, the thing was, there was no template for it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh, we'll go to um, uh, player uh, free agent announcement um, template C, where we, you know, put the player here. But there was no template, and so they were, they, you know, they were putting together a program that had never been done before. They were putting it together very quickly, and they just really didn't think it out. It was more, I mean, this is this sounds cliche, and it is, but it was more about whether they could do it than whether they should do it. Mm-hmm. And you know, for example, you know, they never worked with the NBA. Well, the NBA. Um, you know, puts on events like they just totally did independent of the NBA. The NBA puts on hundreds of events a year, hundreds of broadcasts a year. Um, you know, if he had gone to the NBA, maybe they would have let him have highlights to show on, you know, he, he didn't own highlights to show. So, um, you know, they just had to have this shot of these kids in this gym just staring at LeBron. And after all that time, it just got awkward. You know, they didn't, it wasn't a producer who knew how to do it. And so, like, this is what, in retrospect, they all were like, man, we should have done this. I mean, but in the moment, they just thought, wow, we are taking, we are totally taking control and we're raising a bunch of money for charity and they were blind to anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking about the NBA's lack of involvement, one thing that stands out is David Stern's staunch opposition to it. Oh, yes. Yes, he, he begged ESPN not to run it. Not to, not to take part in it. Um, he couldn't really get to and tell LeBron what to do, but ESPN was a partner of his, and, and John Skipper, um, who was the head of ESPN content at the time, later became the head of the network. I mean, he pretty much said, David Stern called him several times and was very forceful in saying, please do not do this, or, or please give it some more time or some more thought. And, um, and uh, you know, ESPN just decided to go forward with it. And, um, you know, that's, you know, it was just such a, incredibly intense time. I mean, even if it happened now, I mean, even if in the free agency now, I think we would have a, a basis for understanding. But back then, like nobody, not even the fans or, or the media had seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. 
Where, where do you think Stern's opposition, what, what do you think his opposition was rooted in? Was it that he just saw it going poorly or he wanted to have more control over it or, or was it something else? Well, I would say that I think it's fair to say that David Stern pushed back against um, player empowerment at times. Certainly Adam Silver is going to take a completely different stance when it comes to, you know, to giving players power to do things. Um, I think that was part of it. But I also think he was nervous about the way it would come off. Um, you know, he, 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 was, he was concerned about it coming off as arrogant and, and that it would be unlikable. He, you know, somewhat, he, was, he was probably a little bit too, um, too vocally against it. And, and maybe, the, maybe the LeBron group would have worked with him if he came more to offer assistance than he was to say tisk tisk. Um, maybe that was a mistake that maybe Adam Silver wouldn't make. But um, again, it all happened very fast. It was announced within days of it happening. It was put together within a couple of weeks of the idea. And it wasn't like there was there's a history to go on here where they said, oh, this will never work. I mean, mm-hmm. there was reason to believe that it would be successful. And I do have one uh, question of clarification uh, about the decision. Uh, You write about Dan Gilbert's infamous post-decision letter and say that anyone who had ever received a private email from Gilbert would know that this was his preferred method. Are are you saying here that Gilbert was just sending off every email and enlarged Comic Sans font? Well, not necessarily in that type of, um, (laughs) in that type of mood, in that type of mood, but he sent all of his emails in Comic Sans font. (laughs) Um, it was just, it was just his preference. I mean, not, I mean, not everybody knows that, um, which is why when I read it, I knew that, I mean, it was pretty clear anyway, but I knew that he had authored it, mm-hmm. that it was like literally his hand. There was no, um, you know, it would be amazing if there was like a first draft, because if that wasn't the first draft, I'd like to see the first draft. Um, <laughs> but that was just, you know, like that was a thing. I, I mean, Dan loved comic fans. In fact, even like Quicken Loans, his company where I've been, like a lot of the signs and internal signage were in, were in Comic Sans. Um, oh my gosh! Uh, that was just, <laughs> that was just the uh, his his the font of his life was Comic Sans. Man, yeah, that was a that was an anecdote. I went back and reread a few times. I was like, is that really <laughs> D- delightful little tidbit there? And <laughs> moving back a little, you you write at the beginning of the book that one of the things that's impressed you most about LeBron throughout your, your time observing him is his awareness. Could, could you say a little more about how that awareness reveals itself to you and, and what you find so impressive about it? Yeah, it's multi-level. So obviously he's an incredible passer on the court and you can't be a great passer unless you have great awareness. This guy's going to cut here. This guy's going to flash open here, etc. cetera. Um, but that awareness level goes into wider than just basketball he's very aware of what's going on in the room um you know he he will he, you know, he may be sitting over there in his locker and you may see him you know, he's playing music and you may see him um bobbing his head and you think he's in his own world but no he's watching teammates interacting with each other um when he's in media scrums um you know when somebody asks a question he'll flash an eye to see um to see where that person's from on their credential and he'll compute, oh yeah, that's right, this guy's doing that story, I, I better be careful of this, or yeah, I want to answer this. Um, so he's very just aware of the room. Uh, and then just his general perspective that he's able to have, and really more at his age. I mean, it's not 
unusual for somebody who's maybe in their 40s or 50s who's been in business for decades and you know, had a lot of failures and learned things to be able to come into a decision about you know a, a major a partnership and say you know I'm gonna I'm gonna look at the 15 and 20 year view here um, the way he did with his shoe contract um, that's just very unusual for a guy who's a teenager even somebody in his early 20s and he sort of had that preternatural um, skill uh, of awareness and it, and, it, and it permeated throughout his life and that's what blows you away what blows you away about LeBron is how on top of everything that he is and some of his decision making that that, that uh, enables mm-hmm. and and talk about his uh, his shoe deal with Nike uh, upon his entering the league Adidas Reebok and Nike were all trying real hard to land him but what was it about Nike that allowed them to close the deal and why has he gone on to call it the best business decision he's ever made yeah, so part of the reason why LeBron got so much money was that he came along at a great time. Jordan had just retired, and there was this demand for the next athlete. And it just so happened that all three companies were in the market for a major player that year. There are some years where you know, some of the companies, like Nike pretty much tries to get as many rookies as they can every year, but there are some years that Adidas and uh, you know, Adidas went in a long period where, where they were not signing athletes, for example. They had the, um, the shoe contracts for the entire league. They had their logo on every, um, on every jersey. And they were like, look, we're gonna, that's going to be our investment in the NBA. We're not going to sign people to $50, $80 million deal. Well, in that particular moment in time, all three companies were in trying to bid. So not only was he super famous as a high school player and thought that there was big marketing, but he was an, uh, you know, coming along at this time where there was going to be three legitimate bidders. And, um, and, and so he, you know, basically Reebok had, had you know, had, you know, Nike was his favorite shoe growing up and Reebok had sponsored his high school teams. He attended major camps for Nike and Adidas. I'm sorry, Adidas sponsored his high school teams. Um, he attended major camps for Nike and Adidas throughout high school. Um, he was familiar with their products. He was familiar with the way they did business. He was familiar with their executives. Um, who came out to, to, to meet and know his family. So Reebok was really sort of in third place. And so they went first, and they basically did what they could do to make up for that lack of knowledge and, and, uh, and, and comfort level. They just tried to pay him through the nose. And so the offer that they made him was by far the richest offer. It was in excess of $100 million. Um, uh, you know, it included stuff like free uses of a private jet uh, that he would be able to use um, the owner, the, the owner of Reebok's yacht for a period of time every year. Like they had thrown a hundred bells and whistles in there. Um, and they offered him a $10 million cashier's check that he could take with him and deposit in the bank the next day. Because that's the thing, like, yes, you may sign a hundred million dollar contract, but um, the first year you may get, you know, 6 million or 7 million. And, you know, that may be paid out over 52 weeks. Uh, here was LeBron, you're still in high school, which he was. Um, here's $10 million that you can have just for, just for uh, taking our deal right now and not meeting with Nike and Adidas. And you can take it with you right now as a cashier's check to be available to be deposited. And he wasn't, he wasn't a millionaire yet. I mean, he knew he, he, knew he was going to be wealthy, but he didn't have the money. So they went for that. And a lot of people, I think, would have taken the money in that moment. In fact, the guy who designed the pitch had signed a lot of music artists um, who were teenagers, and that's why he designed it that way. He told me that when you showed the cash, when you flashed the cash, um, you typically, you know, 
you know, got the, got the artist. And for LeBron, he just didn't think that way. He was willing to take a longer view. And at the end of the day, Nike, and there was a whole process that went through. He went to meet with Adidas. Um, Adidas got bitted out. Then Nike thought they were out. Then he got back in. At the end of the day, he signed for about $87 million with Nike, which was a historic amount of money. Um, he didn't get a $10 million signing bonus. He got a $5 million signing bonus, which was still really good, but um, not $10 million. And, um, and, you know, the reason he did it was because he decided that over the course of his whole career, it's turned into a lifetime contract, so it would be a lifetime deal. He felt that Nike would be better for him. And then maybe in the first contract, he would be leaving uh, millions of dollars on the table. But over the course of time, that being with Nike was the smarter thing, that they would have better marketing, that would help him do other endorsement deals. And that's not really, really prudent in something for a business school um, graduate to maybe think, or somebody mm-hmm. who's been in business for a long time. But again, he was 18 years old. And you know, he was right. Because a couple of years later, Reebok sold itself to Adidas, and they pretty much folded their basketball brand. Um, and Reebok, now, I'm not saying Reebok would have been gone if LeBron had signed there, but they would have been sold. And I know that John Wall, this happened to John Wall, he took the most money coming out, which was again offered by Reebok. Reebok ended up selling to Adidas, and he lost his signature shoe, and he just put out of position. So John Wall took the more money coming out of the gate, but it cost him long term. He, you know, you know, LeBron was a little bit more prudent and it's really paid off for mm-hmm. and and one of the main threads running through your book is the relationships that lebron has with maverick carter randy mims and rich paul what is it about these four people that initially brought them together and has allowed them to to stay so bonded ever since well they're all different maverick uh maverick's family knew lebron's family they knew each other when they were young boys and they were teammates maverick is three years older but they were teammates and they want to stay titled together so there, that's like a, a real organic, genuine friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, Rich Paul, he met um, because LeBron, when he was in high school, was really into throwback jerseys. And he saw Rich at an airport wearing a throwback jersey. He was really impressed with him. He went up and talked to him. And it turned out that Rich had a throwback jersey business. And basically, it was hard to get the, the real authentic throwback jerseys in, um, in, in Ohio, in Cleveland. Cleveland Akron area. He had he had a guy that he knew at a store in Atlanta. So he could go down to Atlanta and fill orders for people. Like, you know, you want um, you know, a certain jersey from the seventies, I'll go down and, and I'll and I'll fill it for you. And LeBron was impressed with the products he had. He thought he had great stuff. In fact, LeBron said that he was wearing a, a a throwback jersey at the time that was really subpar compared to the one that Rich had. And he respected his way of sort of making money and and um and having a business. And you know, he ended up, he was his connection to get throwback jerseys. And then after that, he just liked the way that he thought, you know, and, and Rich Paul is a really smart guy. And, and just like LeBron had, you know, natural instincts to be a businessman and be a negotiator and, and put things together when he was in his teams, Rich Paul did too. And they found each other and that worked out. And Randy Mims was a friend of, um, uh, a friend of uh, his father figure who ended up going to prison while LeBron was in high school. And, and he was, a guy, you know, he wanted to make sure LeBron was taken care of. And he said, hey, I want you to watch out for this kid. And so he started coming around as a favor to his friend. And yes, it ended up benefiting him greatly. But at the heart of it, at the, at the genesis of it, he was, he was just trying to protect him. And so those were, those, you know, say what you will about it. It's not really any different, you know, than you know, if you are somebody from the suburbs who's white and you go to, to, to uh, school and you meet somebody in a fraternity that later on you end up going into business with. That sounds, that may sound like a more conventional path, but when you think about the way they're raised in the different, different spaces, it's really not any different the way LeBron put his team together. Mm-hmm. 
And, and what led Rich Paul to eventually pursue becoming an agent himself? And, and how has he been able to establish himself in clutch as one of, one of the major players in that field? When his modeling career failed. That's right. <laughs> he was a model for a time. I think he even got into some, um, uh, Jay, I can't remember what Jay-Z's clothing line is, but uh, he got into some ads for that. Um, he, he had a mind for it, and he was able to, um, you know, not only was he Dave a mind for it and was intelligent, but he looked young. He looks much younger than he is. He's in his, I think he's in his late 30s, early 40s. He looks like he's in his 20s. Um, so he can relate to young African-American kids, and he's smart. Not only is he smart, he's pretty savvy. And there's a difference there. There's a difference between savviness and smart. Some people are one, not the other. He's both. And um, he started working for uh, a big uh, agency, CAA, recruiting athletes, sort of um, going and meeting them when they were in college, getting to know them, helping connect him and the agent. He's like, you know what? If I can recruit these players for this agent, I can recruit players for myself. And I'm going to start off with recruiting LeBron James. So if you're going to start an agency, starting off with the best player certainly helps. And it's grown from there. Now it's one of the top agencies in the NBA. Mm-hmm. What, what led LeBron uh, to start paying closer attention to his foundation in a, in a more pronounced way, shifting its focus to, to preventing young students from dropping out? Well, it was a bit of a mess early on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was losing money, which is an unusual for athlete foundations. You know, he, he was putting a certain amount in and it was losing that. Um, it was unfocused. It had several events a year, but it wasn't, you know, it was doing things, but it just, it wasn't efficient. At one point, he hired a company to run his foundation so he didn't have to deal with it. So he was paying money to help to, to, to help communities, which was a defeating of the purpose if you're paying money to do it. And so it just wasn't right. So he, he did a deal in the late 2000s with um, State Farm, and it was, to, it was to sell insurance. He was doing you know, a Super Bowl commercial for State Farm. Um, but one of the things that State Farm was really involved in at the time was a, um, uh, a, uh, a project to try to keep uh, teenagers who were dropping out of high school in school. And they had a lot of their endorsers that, um, you know, be a part of it. And when LeBron sought the project, it was actually State Farm's project. He was really moved by it. They said, you know, and he also was getting to the point in his career where he was getting more focused, uh, developing, you know, into more of a, um, and having a better presence on the court. It, it, it caught him at the right time from a maturation standpoint. And he just, um, said, I really like this and I want to start focusing on this. And um, even after State Farm ended, they moved on, you know, he realized he could help kids who were like him, which were, you know, third, fourth, fifth graders who were from difficult circumstances, who were in danger of falling behind reading level, um, you know, not being able to, to, uh, to graduate with their classes, you know, drive them out of school. He said, not only am I interested in this, but this is something I can help kids who are like me. And as the years have gone by, he's gotten more and more invested and has become a major focus of his, uh, his life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And with the, with the culmination of the I Promise School, which we talked about a bit earlier, it's just been one of the, the biggest successes, it seems, of his off-court life as well. For sure. And with, uh, you, you talk a bit about the, the founding of Spring Hill uh, Entertainment. How, how has that come to be his sort of primary off-court money-making priority? Well, his primary off-court money-maker is still Nike. That's where the big check comes okay, from. Yes. But, um, you know, when he was uh, five or six years his career, um, he got approached about making a documentary by uh, a young guy who had had some footage of them when they were in high school. And 
LeBron loved the concept of it. The documentary was a critical success. It wasn't a financial success. It didn't sell a lot of tickets, but they loved the process. And so they looked into making more movies like that. They, they went to the Toronto International Film Festival with a documentary and they won like the award for, for I can't remember what the name of the award was, but Crowd's Choice or People's Choice. And winners of the People's Choice Award have gone on to win the Oscar for Best Picture. That was no minor uh, thing. And they just loved the, um, the accolades and the affirmation they got from that process, which is a multi-year process. And they were like, we got to do more of this. Now, it took him a while to get going. In fact, he had a movie that he was going to make for a studio um, that was with Brian Grazer, the famous producer, and they had a director all lined up and they were going to film it. And after the decision, they pulled the plug because they didn't think anybody would buy tickets and it would be lost. Um, and that slowed him down a little bit. But um, the other thing was it became easier to make uh, and distribute, um, you know, pieces of, uh, of digital content or content in general. Like, you know, Twitter mm -hmm. came around and, and uh, Instagram and LeBron could, you know, create a platform that didn't need a, a major studio or a major television station to do. So it became more feasible to, um, to, have, a media, to have a media company and easier to distribute. And, and um, he got, he's got into it. And, um, you know, it, it is... It's been a nice moneymaker. Uh, I think he would really love to hit on Space Jam, and, and that's <laughs> set up a film career. Maybe not for him, but at least for his production company. Um, that's a big deal, but um, it's definitely something that they've focused on, and they've had some reasonable success. They've got a lot of projects in the works. Mm -hmm. And why do you th what, what was it that um, led LeBron and Maverick to – become less interested in earning money in the short term and more interested in establishing ownership and, and seeking partnerships as, as they have with founding Spring Hill. What, what was it that led them to, to develop this viewpoint? Was there like a transformative moment or, or did it just evolve naturally? Well, two things. One, they made some money. So they, they didn't, you know, they were, they were, they were set for life. They didn't have to worry about uh, let's make sure our bank is filled so they could look at more long-term projects. Secondly, um, they did a deal with a bicycle company. Um, you know, LeBron was into bikes. He still rides a lot of bikes to this day. And one of his money managers had the idea, you know, you should invest in a bike or bicycle company. And, and they did. It was a, And I'm not into the biking, so maybe this is a legacy uh, company. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Called Cannondale Bicycles. And the concept was, that LeBron would not just be an endorser of the product, but also would, would be a, um, a partner. And, uh, you know, he would advise them on campaigns and, and be more invested. And, you know, the company was in, was in trouble. Uh, that it was in the middle of a turnaround when LeBron bought in. His uh, addition to it gave it high profile. Within a short period of time, uh, they sold the company at a pretty big profit. And LeBron made a nice piece some money on it um it wasn't like anywhere near a, his nba salary or his nike salary even the salary from coca-cola but it was like wow this was enjoyable mm -hmm. you, know, you know doing this type of deal was really enjoyable not only did we have fun but we made money we made way more money than, than if we had just taken a single check to just go pitch the product and he really started getting invested and looking for those types of deals and over the course of his career He's had, he's had some. He's been invested in some companies that didn't work out, but he's hit some. He's hit some big ones too. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure with the competitive instinct, there's there's sort of that gambler's impulse there that that I'm sure gives a, a bigger bigger sense of satisfaction than just uh, endorsing as well. For sure, like with Beats headphones, for example, uh, when Beats started, 
you know, LeBron knew the, the founder, Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre, they didn't have a huge marketing budget. You know, this is, this is not a corporation that's launching a new product that has a, a whole apparatus behind it. You know, they couldn't pay LeBron millions of dollars to do commercials for it. They couldn't even afford to buy commercials. So he used some really some guerrilla marketing, basically giving them away mm-hmm. as gifts and wearing them himself. He made them popular and it grew and grew and grew. And a few years later, it sold to Apple for $3 billion. And he realized um, somewhere between 50 and $100 million. And again, way more money than if he had just said, okay, I'm not going to go with Beats and take a few percentage points. I'm going to go with this, this other established uh, headwear company and I'm going to take a paycheck where I may make you know, $4 million over the course of two years or something like that. Obviously, it can really pay off. Mm-hmm. And, and moving back to, to the world of basketball a bit more, you, you call his going to the Lakers last offseason a, a business decision. What, what do you, what, why do you believe that he felt comfortable emphasizing business at this point in his career over basketball? Well, I, I don't think he would describe it as that. I think he would still say to you that um, he was a basketball decision first. I just don't think that it was all a basketball decision. And by the way, that's not like unheard of for him. I mean, when he came back to Cleveland in 2014, that was not all a basketball decision. There were mm-hmm. other teams he could have gone to that would have been, he could have stayed put, frankly, and had maybe a chance at, uh, at just as much or more success. Um, so it's not like this is something, you know, he's not always made it all about basketball. This is a switch. But clearly he's setting up his post-career to be invested in the media business and the place that is the media capital of the world is Los Angeles. And you don't have to, you know, have any special insight to figure all that, that out. Mm-hmm. And c- considering how difficult his on court life has been this past season, do you think there's been any, any regret about the move to LA? I think there has been some regret that he was a little bit too radical in the way he wanted the team put together. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he has regret about the move. I think he, I think it was time for him to move, and the other options for him to move weren't as attractive. I, I think he's fine with ask again in two or three years. We'll see if he has a different answer. Yeah, because there with with this summer there was just a, a a finite number of teams with the cap space as well, which limited the options and made LA almost the the winner by process of elimination. It seemed from from the outside looking in. Yeah, I mean there were places where he could have gone and probably been more competitive but maybe not with a package of business and, and family being healthy as Los Angeles uh, delivered. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the big sort of subplots has been the Lakers trying to, to pair LeBron with, with a younger player. And they, they struck out in free agency with Paul George and were unable to, to trade for Kawhi or Anthony Davis in the past year. It, do you, do you get any sense um, that there's any hesitation from younger players to partner with LeBron considering the age difference and the eminence of the end of his prime and the inevitable off court drama that, that surrounds it as well. I mean, you could definitely make that case, but I would say that it's dangerous. We talk about a group of people to generalize. Mm-hmm. So while there could be certain players who don't want that or uh, aren't looking for that, there are others who absolutely would. If every player in the league was a free agent, I don't think LeBron would have a difficulty assembling a great, if not the best team. But, you know, there's only going to be a, a certain amount that come available each year. And sometimes the circumstances aren't right. I mean, it's not unlike uh, the dating pool, you know. Um, uh, sometimes it's a match, sometimes it's not. But just because it's not doesn't mean the person hates you. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think he is, he, you know, and I think this would apply to any star player. 
it's a little bit harder sell when the star is a little older as opposed to when he's in his prime, which, you know, happens happened with multiple players over their careers. Mm-hmm. So perhaps last summer, if there's different free agents rather than Paul George or next summer, if it's someone rather different than Kawhi or you, you may see a different result. That's what I'd say. I'd say that Anthony Davis, if he was a free agent, would be glad to sign with him. And Anthony Davis is a top five to seven player. Mm-hmm. He doesn't happen to be a free agent. But let's see what happens over the next few years. Yeah, it'll be very interesting. And last night, of course, uh, we're, we're speaking right after Magic Johnson unexpectedly retired from president of basketball operations. Uh, what, what role did, did Magic play in persuading LeBron to join the Lakers? Like, What, what role did he did LeBron want him to play? And, and how do you expect Magic's resignation to, to impact LeBron moving forward? Well, the role that he played was is that he got the team with salary cap space to sign LeBron. And he also is a, someone LeBron respects. Mm-hmm. But I think if there had been another general manager of the Lakers who had done the same thing, he would have done it. I, I mean, I don't want to dis... But, you know, he did not come to Cleveland to play for Dan Gilbert. He did not come to Cleveland to play for David Griffin, the general manager at the time. He came to Cleveland because that's where he and his family wanted to be. He and his family wanted to be in Los Angeles. And as long as Magic, you know, didn't insult him or, or, you know, vomit on his shoes or whatever, I think he would have had a really good chance of getting him. And as far as, you know, what it means going forward, I think, ask, again, ask LeBron in the year. I think mm-hmm. um, what LeBron demands from anybody who's supporting him, whether it's a, a, a role player off the bench or an assistant coach or a general manager, he wants you to execute and function at a high level. I don't think that the Lakers did that this year. Um, I don't think LeBron did that in certain cases this year. Um, so I think, I think he's, I don't think he's like, he has to have a certain type of, of, of person in that role. What he wants in that role is somebody who knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. What do you make of the, the, the rumors throughout the years that, that LeBron is basically operated as a shadow general manager uh, wherever he's been? Do you think those are overblown or essentially accurate? Well, I think what people want when they talk about stuff like that is they want a black and white answer. Either LeBron is the general manager or he's not. Did LeBron fire the coach or hire the coach or did he not? And, you know, I know that this is somewhat difficult to to, to kind of grasp. It's shades of gray. So, like, LeBron has influence on signings, and he certainly has coaches that you clearly know he likes or doesn't like, but he's not – in the business of doing that. And, and, and there's a reason why. I think the funny thing about it is that he's been accused of, you know, getting coaches hired or fired. Teams actually would prefer it if LeBron was a little bit more open and a little bit more interested hmm. in the hiring and firing of the coaches, because at least if he was that way, they would know he was invested in their success. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I'm sure that, you know, the Lakers would love it if LeBron would, you know, come forward and give a firm, honest, ironclad opinion. I love Luke Walton and I want to play for him forever, or I don't want Luke Walton, get him out of here. Then at least they would know But LeBron isn't going to do that because why would he marry himself to a player or to a coach when he may need to distance himself from that person later on? It's just, frankly, it's just not good business. It's the way LeBron has operated for a long time. That isn't to say that at times in his career, he hasn't had influence on 
basketball decisions that there hasn't been players he's wanted to trade for or, or coaches he didn't want to play for. But it's not just, you know, cut and dry. It, it, there's shades of gray. And um, frankly, it's probably not a bad way to do it if you're him. Mm-hmm. And, and I do personally wonder if his presence influencing the decision-making of executives has often been conflated with him wielding influence. Yes, that's a good point. Um, mm-hmm. But I, like, he wields influence when he wants to, uh, but not when necessarily, you know, at the, uh, at the, at the, when the team wants it. You know, there's, a, there's a difference there. There's, there's an important distinction. And, um, and it also, like, I don't think he's out of line in doing so. Why wouldn't he? If you were in his shoes, wouldn't you want to have a certain influence? I, I don't think he's out of line. I think it's, it's something that's been used against him over the years, and I don't think it's always fair that, that it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I'd imagine that most NBA players would, would love to have that level of, of influence or, or ability to sort of create their own destiny in the way he has. Yeah, and I think, um, look, I'm not saying he's been perfect. Uh, I'm just saying that, you know, there, it hasn't always gone the way that it would, it would, it would fit the, the best story. Mm-hmm. And, and to wrap up, I, I, I like to ask a, a few questions I ask every guest. Okay. Um, to, to start off, what are you currently reading at the moment? Uh, I'm currently reading. <laughs> this is it's a good one. Uh, I, when I can, first off, I listen to audiobooks because I need to, I need to move. I need to do things while I'm, you know, I'm driving or I'm traveling or whatever else. I like listening to things that are not basketball when I can. So I like, um, I really started liking the television show on Amazon called Bosch, which is, um, based on a series of books that were written in the 90s and 2000s, and I think we're still writing today by Michael Connolly about a Los Angeles police detective, their novels. And I think there's like 20 of them, and I think I've gotten through about maybe 15 or 16 of them. And uh, right now, when I am not working or having to listen to something to prepare for work, uh, I'm listening to novels about an L.A. police detective. And right now, actually, I'm listening to one that was written in like 1995. So it's a completely mm-hmm. different era. There's like, you know, and frankly, to, to be detached like that is soothing and enjoyable. Absolutely. I know it's one of the weirdest things for me over the past year is the fact that reading about basketball has become work and it's a, it's a strange uh, transition now. <laughs> um, right. Like we all want to get away. Right. And, and if you could recommend any book to everyone listening today, uh, what would it be? Hmm. Well, good question. I wish I could have thought about this uh, some more. Um, I, you know, I, as far as sports books go, um, I really like John Feinstein's books, which are mostly about golf, some about college basketball. Um, they're he- maybe it's because they're heavily reported books. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a reporter who does some of the same type of writing, maybe that's why I'm more geared to being adapted or, you know, attracted to them. Um, I, uh, as far as novels, I think Michael Connolly is a terrific novelist. I read the other books. Like, it, it, the funny thing is, it's nothing against John Grisham or John Grisham fans, but after reading a bunch of Michael Connolly novels, I can't go back to John Grisham now. <laughs> I'm kind of, um, you know, team Michael Connolly, not that you have to do that, but uh, I really like the way, and it actually helps me with my own writing because I pay attention to 
the way he constructs stories. And after you, you know, read, you know, 20 or so of the same person's novels, you kind of can understand the way they write and the way they use tools. And even though I'm writing nonfiction that's reported, um, sometimes some of what, some of his devices and the way he puts stories together help me construct and put together stories as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I remember reading an, an article by Gates Elise and they asked him like his number one writing advice for nonfiction writers. And he said, read fiction. <laughs> it's not a bad, it's not a bad uh, at all. And for, for a number of different reasons as well. Mm-hmm. And, and what is your earliest sports memory? Well, um, I remember uh, going to, I was a Cleveland Browns fan. Mm-hmm. as a child um and i remember going to a lot of people remember uh the drive mm-hmm. um which is where john elway in cleveland led the broncos to the win in the afc title game well i went to the playoff game the week before that um who i think i think they played the jets and it was a double overtime game um, where I thought they were completely done. They were, it was one of these football games where they were down um, two scores with like less than five minutes to go, and they pulled off a crazy comeback and then won in double overtime, and it was a freezing day. And that experience um, was tremendous. And I, I definitely went to other big sporting events when I was younger than that, but I don't remember them. I remember that game for sure. Mm-hmm. That, that's a good one to remember. <laughs> And and what's the first thing you remember writing? You know, when I was, um, you know, in in grade school, um, my sixth grade teacher did this exercise every week called the story starter, where she would give us the first sentence of a story, and everybody had to use that first sentence and write from there. And I loved it. And it required you know, creativity and the best ones every week were read in front of the class. And so not only did you learn by doing it, but you also could hear other people. I mean, you weren't, um, you weren't, uh, you know, just working with yours, you were working with others. So I, to this day, I think that positively affected the way I look at stories. And I think it's a great teaching device. Mm -hmm. And, and if you could give your younger writing self any, any piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, patience. Um, this is one of the things I see a lot in young journalists. And, and by the way, in a lot of cases, it's a, it's a positive trait. Um, but having patience is so important. Sometimes things aren't going to work out. Um, it's really to use something I learned from LeBron. You know, one of the things about LeBron is, you know, He'll go, he'll go on a night, he'll go into Salt Lake City or go into Denver, and it's in the middle of like a five or six game road trip. It'll be the second night of the back-to-back, and he just won't have it. And his team will get blown out by 15 or 18 or 25 points. And, you know, usually it was the biggest game for the opposing team the entire season. It's a sellout crowd. Um, they're jeering him. You know, afterwards, the media asks him, boy, your team's not really that good. You know, the, the Jazz kicked your butt. And he would just sit there and take it. Yep, uh, they played great. We're going to have to get better. And the night would end, and it was just miserable for him. And he'd put on his suit, throw his shoulders back, and go get on the plane and, and, um, and go off to the next one. And so really, just to put it in the parlance of our times, 
sometimes you just got to take an L, you know, <laughs> sometimes, um, sometimes things don't go your way. Uh, you have a project or, or a story or a, a job that you want and, um, and you don't get it. And it's not time to tuck your tail between your legs and, and run away. There are, there are always going to be other opportunities, I promise. And that's something that when I was younger, I didn't understand. And, um, and I give myself that advice to this day when there's a project, something that I really want that I don't get. You know, sometimes you got to take an L. There will always be other opportunities. <laughs> well, Brian, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to appear and talk about your book with me today. I, I really enjoyed the book and I, I enjoyed talking to you as well. Thank you very much for reading it and I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to the Pros and Pros podcast. Stay tuned for many more exciting guests in the near future. And in the interim, please subscribe and leave a positive review if you've enjoyed the show. You can also follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at Pros and Pros. I'm Michael Wimmer. Happy reading, everyone.